Welcome to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry, a collaborative podcast with Pass It On Network. Seniors deserve to have a fulfilling life with dignity and respect, but as we transition into our elderhood years, this doesn't always happen. Join us today as we discuss some of the most important issues that seniors face and provide much-needed answers to your questions. Now, here are Phyllis and Rubina. Hi, welcome to Senior Straight Talk, where we present informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. I'm Phyllis Amon, your host. My co-host, Rubina Chaudhry, is off today. Our show, which began in September 2019, was formerly known as Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. As with Senior Straight Talk, all episodes of the previous show can be heard on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and can be downloaded on popular podcast platforms. I'm proud to announce that now it can also be found on Amazon Music. Please remember to like, click, and share our episodes. A few weeks ago, I began to introduce short news items at the top of the show. You can now hear senior news for today on my YouTube channel at Phyllis Amon Associates. Please like, share, and subscribe. Also, for those listeners feeling stressed, stretched, and overwhelmed, help is here. Resilience Toolbox Secrets will help you recharge, reset, and recommit as you face life's challenges. You can find them on my website at phyllisamonassociates.com. My book, Dignity and Respect, Are Our Aging Parents Getting What They Deserve? is now available on Amazon. I'm proud to say it became a number one new release on Amazon. I appreciate your support and hope you'll be able to post a review that supports the book and helps spread the word on this all-important topic. If the book doesn't show up on your Amazon search, please feel free to email me at phyllis at seniorsstraighttalk.com from the show page. I want to thank Peter DeGear of DeGear Therapy Services, who is a colleague and consultant specializing in rehabilitation therapy services and nursing homes. And at this juncture, I'm also proud to announce that Senior Straight Talk now has a collaborative partner, the Pass It On Network, a global peer learning network for positive aging advocates, and a member of the United Nations Open-Ended Working Group on Aging, now joins Seniors Straight Talk, bringing our listeners informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. Now for the news items for the news item for today. According to an article in McKnight's Long-Term Care News, Argentum, the leading national organization dedicated to supporting 75% of companies operating professionally managed resident-centered senior living communities in the United States, assembled a working group of clinical experts to address key COVID-related challenges to help guide its assisted living members. Argentum created a COVID advisory council and assembled an infection and prevention control group compromised of clinical experts from across the country. They created comprehensive guidance to help assisted living communities. This was meant to help them not only determine readiness to handle infectious diseases, but also to uncover areas that needed attention. And now for today's guest, I'm happy to say that we have James Balda, who is the president and CEO of Argentum. So I'd like to share a little about his background. 
In his role, he's responsible for the overall leadership of the association and is charged with transforming the vision and mission of Argentum to meet the changing needs of the senior living industry. Before joining Argentum, Mr. Boulder served in several roles at the National Restaurant Association, where he was responsible for advancing the association's business development, insurance, and financial services product strategy, focusing on enhancing the member value proposition and growing the membership base, transforming the association's brand, marketing, and communication activities, and expanding relationships with state partners. Before joining the National Restaurant Association, Baldus served as Senior Vice President of Membership and Professional Development at America's Health Insurance Plans. In this position, he was responsible for the association's member services, professional training, customer service, and online media programs. So I'm so thrilled, uh, James, to have you here. May I call you James? Oh, yes, please. And thank you for having me, Phyllis. And, uh, oh, it's, it's my pleasure, especially considering all the wonderful work that Argentum is doing, uh, especially in this, this challenging COVID situation. So would you like to tell the listeners a little bit more about Argentum's background so they can understand fully what the organization is about? Certainly. Yeah. And thank you again for having me. So Argentum is a, a national trade association um, uh, supporting senior living communities. So independent living, assisted living, memory care, continuing care communities around the country. Um, our focus is, is really around providing uh, educational programs um, and, and starting to move into offering certification programs for the industry and and the, the people that work in the industry, but also um, uh, working from a public policy perspective to make sure that our communities and, and team members and residents have what they need to, to ultimately be successful and, and care for, for our resident population. Oh, that's terrific. So in terms of uh, education and certification programs, can you tell us a little bit about what that really entails? Sure, certainly. Um, so uh, several years ago, uh, part of our leadership got together and, and really identified that um, uh, while, uh, you know, it takes a lot of people to run a community, the executive director of the community really sort of steers the ship and, and drives the culture um, of what goes on in the building and, and the, the level of care that's provided and really wanted to uh, identify a way to ultimately certify those executive directors um, that really go above and beyond. Um, and so they, they work to create um, a certification for executive directors of assisted living communities that, that have multiple years of experience, but also demonstrate uh, a, a really strong knowledge of what it takes to run a building, not just sort of the, the state licensure requirements to run a building, but what it takes to manage people, work with people, um, uh, and ultimately uh, care for, for all of the residents in the building. And so we went through a process several years of, of ultimately creating a, a job task analysis that took a look at all of those components of, of what it really takes to, to run a senior living community and then put together uh, an exam that, that ultimately tests for the, your proficiency in all of those areas. And we've had some pretty good success with it. I'm very interested in that because I'm actually a certified administrator for assisted living and small residential care homes in California. Okay. And um, I, I got that earlier this year. And um, so that particularly interests me because 
there's a lot more that goes into it than just understanding the rules and regulations, which a lot of people may not realize. I myself did not realize, though I knew it was an all-encompassing position, the detail and the extraordinary knowledge that you have to have in all of the regulatory areas. It really, oh, yeah. it's incredible. Um, so I'm also curious about leadership training because that really wasn't part in a great measure uh, in the training that I took. I'm sure each state has different training components, uh, but I would imagine it's pretty similar. So what about leadership? Because I come from the nursing home space, as most of the listeners know, but, um, you know, I've seen leaders and then I've seen people who were not so great leaders. And um, I've often talked about that. Uh, So what is uh, Argentum doing in that area or are there initiatives in that area? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I mean, we are a people business, right? And so leadership really is a core component of, of what it is that, that our executive directors do every day. So the certification program that we developed, uh, Certified Director of Assisted Living, um, does have a, a strong leadership component to it. Um, but we went even beyond the certification program and developed a, a program called the Executive Director Leadership Institute. Um, which, while not a certification program, really focuses in on those core components of what it takes to be a strong leader, um, because we think it's 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 really critically important um, that that's sort of job number one when you're when you're running a building. Um, and so, uh, those are sort of the two components that we put in place specifically for executive directors on the leadership front. But there's also there's much more that uh, goes into leadership than just you know testing somebody's qualifications to be a leader. An initiative that we launched um, about two years ago now, I think, is, is women in leadership. And, and one of the things um, I noticed when I first came into the industry and, and certainly heard from many was, um, while we've got an enormous amount of women that work in our buildings um, and an enormous amount of women that actually run our buildings, once you start moving beyond the community itself, you don't see um, uh, proportionally the same number of women running companies or serving in senior management roles. And so our our, uh, board um, uh, identified that and took that on as an issue for us to address in terms of how do we advance more women up through the senior ranks of of the companies that are running these communities. Um, And that's something that we're continuing to move forward on. Yeah, uh, several months ago, I think it's several months ago now, we had on the show Larry Minix, who comes, who was a former CEO of Leading Age and is the, I believe, founder of Leading Age's Leadership Academy or was certainly one of the initiators. And we had quite an extensive conversation about how you go about identifying leaders, because even though you may want people to come up through the ranks, not everybody has those qualities. And how do you identify those qualities? Uh, The other area of concern for me, as I say, coming from the nursing home space, but it really doesn't matter what space you're coming from, because it's really the same. Uh, Even whether it's business or healthcare, it's it's really all the same. Uh, Leadership is leadership and those skills are those skills. But it's not only executive directors or, let's say, in the case of a nursing home, an administrator, the people in charge of various departments. And in nursing home space, I have always found that people are maybe promoted, but 
don't necessarily have the skills that are required to advance to that position. So is that something that also occurs in the assisted living space? So it's a great point. Not everybody can can develop into a leader um, and you need to identify individuals that, you know, have that potential and, and, and those attributes. But I also think there's a lot that we can do as an industry to give people the tools to develop those attributes. Um, so uh, really, we've been focusing a lot on apprenticeship programs. Um, and we, we received a grant from the Department of Labor um, uh, about nine months ago or so. Um, to ultimately develop uh, career pathways within uh, the senior living industry so that uh, wherever you come into uh, uh, the industry, there's a, a pathway for you to follow so that you can move up into a leadership position. But along the way, you need the right tools and the right training and the right education to get you there. Um, but I heard oftentimes, when, when I first started, I, I did a lot of traveling around the country, going into communities, talking to team members and executive directors and residents and family members to, to sort of understand things. And one of the, the challenges I heard was, you know, I come into this industry, I've got a great passion for what I do and caring for seniors, um, but I want to see an opportunity for me to move up in the industry. And so that's really why we started focusing in on apprenticeships and career pathways to help people see that role for themselves in the future and show them the steps that it could take to ultimately get there. Yeah, no, I think that's terrific. I've worked with so many people over the years, again, in nursing homes, uh, people who were, let's say, uh, you know, certified nurse assistants or somebody in housekeeping who, who it's obvious they have tremendous leadership potential, but they are only seen as the position that they have. And they're, unless they are self-motivated to go back to school or uh, pursue some other kinds of certification, nobody really... In the places that I've been, I'm not saying nobody does, but in the places that I've been for the most part, it doesn't seem like people are giving them that kind of support. So that's a wonderful thing that I that Argentum is doing and much needed, much needed. Well, and, you know, one of the things, and, and this goes uh, back to sort of my days working for the National Restaurant Association, one of the things I learned there, particularly in the restaurant business, was Oftentimes, your, your restaurant owners um, or those working in restaurant companies uh, at senior levels started out either uh, serving um, tables, busing tables, working in the washroom, you know, the, uh, the dish room. We often called it dish room to the boardroom. Um, and it's, it's really, I mean, an incredible opportunity to take people who've got a passion for what they do and, and sort of develop them into leaders and I think that's what we're trying to do here. And many of our companies are trying to do, many of our members are trying to do is, is find people that have that passion for the work and then put them in a position to be successful. Yeah, one of the best administrators I ever worked for started out in the dish room in a nursing home and worked himself up to be an administrator. And I always said, um, he left there for a variety of reasons, left that place. He actually brought me to that nursing home and then had to leave for, like I said, a variety of reasons. I always said I'd go work with him anywhere, anytime. He was really incredible. I think that comes from understanding being in that position and going through the ranks and understanding what it is to work at all those different levels. Um, and also rehab directors that started out as, uh, let's say, nurse aides. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. They have a different appreciation for the job that other people are doing at other levels. And I think it brings something to, to the leadership position. 
Yeah, well, and that path can always branch off too, right? Get, let's give people an opportunity to do something different in in, in our communities or in in the in our companies. Um, uh, so I think there's there's a tremendous opportunity, and I see a lot of our companies moving more towards this apprenticeship career pathway uh, kind of movement, and I'm I'm very optimistic about where it's going. Oh, that's great. What about um, policy and regulatory initiatives? Because I know when you and I had a conversation, you told me that you're involved, that Argentum is involved with that. So what policy and regulatory initiatives do you see, especially in this COVID situation? I'm sure things have, have changed in that regard. Yeah, it's, um, uh, it's been interesting, to say the least, um, from a public policy perspective. As you know, and, and you know, we mentioned earlier talking about state regulations, our, our communities are predominantly regulated at the state level, extensively at the state level. Um, uh, but a big part of the support that the industry has needed has been at a national level. So uh, in terms of getting access to personal protective equipment in the earliest days of the, um, the virus, um, getting access to testing, now we're moving into sort of the next stage, which is getting prioritization for vaccines. And so a lot of our work has been educating lawmakers around what senior living really is. Um, they tend to think about it in a broader uh, bucket of just long-term care. But long-term care is an incredibly complex continuum where, you know, you've got skilled nursing facilities, you've got assisted living facilities, you've got independent living, memory care, continuing care, you've got home health, home hospice. I mean, there's just a broad array and it, it doesn't all fit in neatly into one bucket. And so we've had to spend an incredible amount of time just educating them on exactly who our residents are, what our buildings are, our communities, and, and what's the level of service that we provide. And And I think that there were sort of two differing uh, or misconceptions that policymakers had. Either on the one hand, they thought of us as skilled nursing facilities um, and okay, we, we've covered you in the resources that we provided for skilled nursing facilities, and, and that wasn't um, uh, accurate. But on the other hand, they, they think of us more as retirement homes. So somebody once used the term of, of where somebody goes when they don't want to cut the grass anymore. <laughs> so we've really had to, to work incredibly hard to, to sort of educate them that, no, that's not who we are. In many cases, our, our residents come to our buildings, one, because they want the socialization and engagement that we can offer, but two, because they need the level of personal care um, that we provide. And, and they often have, you know, um, uh, uh, chronic conditions, um, in some cases very similar to, to patients in a skilled facility. Um, and so we've just had to educate them on that. And we've been successful. Um, I think we're going to have to continue that education for some time to, to come, though, um, as we continue to need more resources. I am pleased to, that, you know, we've ultimately gotten prioritized for our team members and our residents, at least recommended um, uh, to be prioritized uh, for vaccines uh, as they become available. Um, but we just need to stay uh, vigilant on that moving forward. Uh, it's interesting that uh, you say that because, so what comes to my mind is that if people in federal and regulatory positions didn't necessarily understand what assisted living really was, where does that leave the general public? That's a great question, right? And I do think, and, and I'll be the first to admit, I didn't understand it before I, I took this, this job. Um, and now, you know, I didn't even know what an assisted living community was, to be honest. Uh, now I see them all over the place. But um, uh, so th 
I had to go through my own sort of learning curve to, to really understand it. And I think the, the average consumer, whether it's a, a potential resident or their family members and loved ones, um, I think it, it can be quite complex uh, for them to, to ultimately understand the distinctions between what we provide versus what they think of as a nursing home. And I think that's where everybody's um, sort of perception automatically goes to is this concept from, I don't know if it's the 70s or 80s, but of a nursing home. Um, and we've got to continue to, to educate them that that's, that's not what we provide. And even within our own levels of services, there's a broad array of t- different types of products that are available um, for people based upon the levels of, of care that they need, but also based upon um, what they can afford um, and what they're ultimately looking for. And, and so it's just, it's, it's an incredible amount um, of education that needs to go on. So it's interesting that you said about what people can afford because, well, and I'll, I'll just say something to what you said about how you didn't really understand what assisted living was until you took this position, which I find it's interesting that they hired somebody who didn't really, you obviously brought a, a whole host of other skills and abilities to the position. Uh, but I myself uh, in recent years didn't fully understand it either. I um I think assisted living is more of a socialization model than, let's say, the skilled nursing space, which is more medically based. But now people with a variety of conditions, as you say, can be in an assisted living community and they can get a variety of levels of assistance, whether it's activities of daily living or uh, medication management uh, that wasn't necessarily available in the past. So assisted living, the whole community, I think, is industry is moving in a different direction uh, in that regard. And it would be good for people to know because maybe people are in skilled nursing facilities and they really don't need to be. Maybe they can be in a more of an assisted living community if they don't really need 24-hour nursing supervision. Would you agree yeah. with that? I, I would. And, and when I, I talk to people, I mean, I encourage them to evaluate all of their options, right? I mean, there are um, uh, different ways to ultimately um, uh, fund living in a senior living community, right? I mean, certainly, you, you know, you have your savings or the, the, the value uh, on your existing home, private residence. There's long-term care insurance. You've got the Veterans uh, Aid and Attendance Program. Um, that you can tap into. And, and actually, even in some states, you've got some unique programs where um, uh, you can leverage Medicaid through the home and community-based um, waiver program uh, to move into our communities. Illinois has got a, a great program that we, we continue to try to model elsewhere where it takes um, essentially uh, those home and community-based waivers and ties it into affordable housing tax credits and, and creates a, a really strong product that delivers those services, bathing, dressing, so on, um, but at, a, at a, a price point that, that folks can, can on the lower income bracket can ultimately afford. So I, I do encourage people to the extent they can to sort of try to fully educate themselves on what those options are, um, because I think there is a lot of flexibility out there. So that's very interesting because I think most people, and myself included until, again, a couple of years ago, thought that assisted living communities were really unattainable unless you had a tr- thousands of dollars every month uh, to pay for those, you know, those accommodations. And then a lot of the services that you may need are on top of that. So they're in addition. So it's great to know that there is a range of 
communities in terms of affordability and a range of ways to pay for them. Yeah, there are, there are. And, and actually, I mean, uh, and the alternatives to our communities in, in many cases are more expensive, right? So um, skilled nursing is in some cases twice as much um, as, as moving into a senior living community. Um, uh, and I should say independent living is, is even less than assisted living, right? So the, the national average for assisted living, I think, is about $4,000 a month. If, if all you need is independent living, you know, it's, it's even less. Um, but home care, right, and, and um, bringing home care into your private residence um, is just as expensive, uh, or if not more so, uh, for fewer hours uh, a week of support. And so, I mean, I think it really is a good solution for a lot of folks. And, and again, it's not just about the, the services that you need, the, the bathing, the dressing, the eating. Lots of our, our residents don't need those levels of services, but they're looking for that socialization. And I hear time and time again about um, uh, individuals that, you know, have been living in their own private residence, whether it's a home or an apartment, um, but their family has moved away. They've lost a spouse or a loved one. And they're, you know, over time have started to lose some of their friends. And even in their own private residence, they're becoming isolated. Mm -hmm. Come into our communities through uh, nutrition, through physical activity and wellness programs, and that socialization with other residents and, and the activities that are, are made available to them, you start to see these individuals sort of uh, get a, a renewed sense of purpose um, and I think that's a, a big part of the value proposition that our communities offer. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, will say that people who move into nursing homes often find that if one of the reasons is that they are isolated in their own homes, that they move into a nursing home, but because it's a different type of model, they're really surrounded by people, but can be very isolated and alone. Not for everybody. And it depends on the nursing home environment and who's running that and what their philosophy is. But unfortunately, I've seen more often than not that that's the case. So assisted living communities offer something very different because it's socialization based. It is. It really is. And that's just part of the culture and the model that, that it started from, which is one of the things that while I didn't know much about it when I started, I, I quickly learned through the whole interview process. I, I, I educated myself as quickly as I could. But, um, uh, you know, and, and I think a big part of that is that person-centered care model, right? So it's all about the individual. It's all about the resident and what their needs are, as opposed to how the building can serve everybody. And I think that that individualization is critical to the, the, the culture of, of who we are and what we do. Yeah, there's a community near me. Uh, I went to visit them uh, several months back, or maybe it's almost a year ago now. And they had some wonderful programs, continuing education programs and, and all kinds of wonderful initiatives that give people a sense of purpose as we all know that continuing to use your mind, develop your mind, have an interest level are important to maintain your level of function, both cognitively as well as emotionally. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, I think there's a, a whole part of um, uh, sort of a renewed purpose to life that goes on when people move into our communities. And I, you know, I've got to be honest, I think nutrition and, and the physical activity is a big part of that. I know growing up, you know, my mom used to worry about my grandmother who was alone 
Um, and, you know, dinner consisted of a bag of, of popcorn, right? And, and I mean, it's just, it's long-term, you know, that doesn't sustain you. Um, and, and so I, I think the combination of all the services we provide really sort of um, physically, emotionally, socially um, uh, sort of uh, can bring people out of sort of the, the cocoon they've been in uh, alone for so long. Yeah, I will say also that from my experience in the assisted living communities that I visited, from an attrition point of view, I think they, the value in what they offer is far greater than what you ordinarily get in a nursing home, for the most part. Well, I know, and I know just, you know, from, from surveys that, that our, our members have done and other firms have done, I mean, the, the satisfaction level overall across the whole industry among residents and family members uh, is typically extraordinarily high, you know, above 90% um, satisfaction with, with what they're um, uh, receiving in their communities. Yeah, that's, I believe I read an article about that recently that attested to that fact. So we're going to take a short break on Senior Straight Talk, and we'll be back in a few moments with James Balda, the CEO and President of Argentum. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Rubina Chaudhry is president and founder of Mars Services, an engineering management consulting firm, as well as founder and president of all of Community Services, a 501c3 providing support services to seniors, families, and the community. Olive's Live, Learn, and Thrive programs engage seniors physically, mentally, and socially. Rubina's passion for seniors stems from her experiences as an only child, living miles away from her aging parents who are over 90 years of age. She understands the issues and decisions caregivers face. Visit olivecs.org for further information. Phyllis Amon, owner of Phyllis Amon Associates, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones and coaches them to become more effective advocates. Her expertise comes from working in over 45 nursing homes. Phyllis, known for her passion, empathy, high-quality care standards, and quality life for older adults, is an experienced educator, speaker, and trainer. She's bridged the gap from healthcare to public and private sector businesses on topics from communication, caregiving, empathy, and novel approaches to team building and leadership. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are tuned in to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email the hosts at phyllis at seniorstraighttalk.com. Now, back to Senior Straight Talk. Welcome back to Senior Straight Talk. I'm here with James Balder, the president and CEO of Argentum. We're having a lively conversation about assisted living communities, diverse assisted living communities, payment for assisted living communities, misconceptions. And I think it's a great place to resume the conversation about misconceptions and payments and any kind of new insurance or reimbursement initiatives that you can tell us about would be, I think, very helpful for listeners. Sure, uh, certainly. And, and, 
you know, predominantly uh, assisted living is a, a private pay model. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily always out of the individual's own pocket, right? So we talked a little bit about long-term care insurance. We did talk about some unique programs that, that participate with uh, Medicaid. Um, uh, and then, of course, you know, you've got um, the Veterans Aid and Attendant uh, Program that people can take advantage of. Um, but I do think, you know, how we provide long-term care in this country, I think coming out of COVID certainly is going to be a big part of the public policy debate. Um, and I think you're going to see a, a push from policymakers to reconsider how we do it and how we pay for it. Um, and that'll impact everything from Medicare and Medicaid, certainly, but to perhaps new models of delivering long-term care. I know that the Biden and Harris administration have a a real focus on providing long-term care in private residence and, and how to sort of expand on those opportunities. And I think technology will be a, a big part of that. Um, but I also think there'll be a discussion about how we finance long-term care. And I think there's a, a lot that we can do to make more uh, affordable assisted living options available to more uh, Americans, right? So when you think about sort of the continuum, you've got uh, people that are receiving long-term care through Medicaid, and you've got people that are currently receiving it um, through, uh, for the most part, our assisted living, independent living, memory care communities. But there's a, a, a big gap in the middle uh, of uh, millions and millions of Americans who are going to need some level of care. And I think the tax system is an is a, a interesting opportunity for us to take a look at. How do we provide tax base uh, savings incentives for people um, to save for their long-term care, but also to pay for long-term care. So for example, my mom needed some long-term care, but I couldn't use my um, uh, uh, HSA funds to help pay for that. I could use it to pay for long-term care insurance premiums, but I couldn't use it to pay ah. for long-term care needs. And that would have been helpful for us. Um, so, you know, how do, how do we make some of those changes from a public policy perspective? Or my, my aunt, just uh, it's all personal examples for me, but my aunt needed some She lived in, in Baltimore and none of us were very close, but she had uh, 10 nieces and nephews who were all willing to contribute. And we did ultimately, but how do you create sort of a tax-based incentive program so that family members can contribute to somebody's long-term care needs? So I think there's certainly needs to be a discussion about um, reimbursement, but also needs to be a discussion about how we can identify some unique ways to allow people to pay for the services they need in different ways. Uh, that's fascinating. Uh, as you were talking, I was thinking about health services accounts. That's what HSAs are, yeah. in case people didn't make that association. Um, yeah, I think that's crucial. Uh, it's a shame that you couldn't use some of those funds uh, to pay for care. I, I don't want to use the word criminal, but it seems like backwards thinking in a way to me. Well, I mean, part of the concept of health savings accounts is that you're putting this money in and it will accumulate over time. So I understand uh, some of the rationale for it, but families find themselves in a situation where they need to be able to provide supports and services right away. And, and again, I think, you know, there's different ways for us to do it in, in different tax-based uh, programs. Yeah, you mentioned also the aid and attendance benefit. We mentioned it uh, briefly. I don't know that there are a lot of people that are really versed in that program. It's not only for veterans, but it's also for their spouses. And I, be I believe, I don't know, I have no statistics on this, 
But I really do believe that there are people in nursing homes, veterans, that probably don't need to be in nursing homes and can use some of those benefits to apply towards an assisted living community, one that maybe is a little more affordable. And you mentioned the Biden-Harris initiatives. One of them is the Money Follows the Person program so that people can remain in their homes and choose to avail themselves of the community services that they need rather than going into some kind of institutional setting. Yeah, and and I think that's going to be a a big push for them moving forward. Um, uh, And and quite honestly, I mean, senior living is people's homes, right? So we find oftentimes a lot of people um, move into an independent living um, uh, unit or an independent living building, which, which offers a certain level of services in terms of dining and transportation and things. Um, but over time, their needs change, and they may move into bringing some of those services into their home. And so that's an opportunity where, where the money follows the person could potentially be leveraged. Um, we just, there's not, and going back to an earlier point we talked about, there's not a one-size-fits-all, right? Um, long-term care is an incredibly broad continuum, and the needs of all of these people are vastly different. And so we need to, to come up with some creative solutions to meet the needs of of all those different needs of of folks that need long-term services and support. Well, I think you're bringing up a very important point. People tend to lump people into a category and um, say, well, these are all older people and this is what they need, or this is what they should have. Um, The Pass It On Network is, is very much about looking at, and Jan Hively and Moira Allen, the two people who founded the organization, are very much about what, what does the person feel they need? What, what are their needs? Where do they see themselves? And this is something that I always tell families when I'm advising them about starting these conversations. People tend to think, and I'm sure you've heard people in the community say either a, um, an older child or family member comes to look for a place for their loved one. Um, well, where is the loved one in that uh, in that situation, you wouldn't go looking for a home and leave the, another person that you're going to be living with in that home out of the process. Why are we doing that for older people? It really takes away their sense of independence, their sense of autonomy before they even, you know, do anything. Um, so I always encourage people to start a conversation around what do you want? What, where do you see yourself? Where do you see yourself now? Where, where do you see yourself if your needs increase? Have those conversations before you get to that point. That's a great point. And that's, particularly with my in-laws, that was the, how we started the conversation. So they were living in West Virginia. They were really too far for anybody to come and, and help them on a, on a regular basis. Um, and so we started the conversation with them uh, about what they needed um, and actually identified that they didn't need an assisted living community, maybe an independent living community, but based on the conversation, what my wife found they needed was really just an apartment close to us. Right. right? We could help when they needed us to. Um, and and it, it's the perfect solution for them. Now it will change over time, most likely, but that was what they needed right then. And because we had that conversation, we're ultimately able to identify a, a good solution for them. Yeah, so that's great. I'm glad that you're bringing up these personal examples because sometimes I don't think people realize that almost every person is faced with this. When I do presentations on caregiving, 
I always start out by asking people, how many of you have an older parent or how many of you are caring for an older parent or know somebody who's caring for an older parent or has a parent and you think they may have care needs in the future? By the time I finish the five or six questions, everybody's hand is raised. And what I always tell people is look around. Everybody is from a different background, a different country, maybe in some situations, speak a different language, a different religion, have different socioeconomic levels, educational levels, but everybody is really in the same situation. It's really a universal, a universal issue. It is. It totally is. And, and increasingly, as, as I've moved into this role, I have those conversations more and more with friends or friends of friends or, or sort of external family members. And I, I think back, you know, when I worked in the restaurant industry, I would have conversations about my job and, oh, what restaurants should we go to? Right. All nice and pleasant. But now the conversations are much more critically important to people, right? I mean, that's a very personal conversation and anything you can do to help them sort of navigate that is actually rewarding. And that's part of what I love about this industry. It's really all about um, uh, giving back, caring for, for, for residents and, and supporting their family members. And um, I, I think it's incredible. I agree, except there's one thing I have to take exception to, which is uh, food is very important to a lot of people. <laughs> it is. Choosing it is. a good restaurant. I loved working in the restaurant. Industry, don't get me I have to say, <laughs> my heart went pitter-patter. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. But um, no, but it, seriously, uh, I have to say, even um, talking about personal examples, there isn't a person that I talk to when they say, what do you do? Or I'm telling them about what I do, who does it. It could be somebody I call about a credit card or an insurance. It, ultimately, for whatever reason, we get engaged in a conversation. And uh, talking about my book, when I spoke with the publisher, the first person and the second person, they were like, oh, my goodness, my grandmother, or, you know, I wish I met you five years ago. And we had this. There isn't a person that I've spoken to that hasn't in some way, shape or form been touched by this issue. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's just going to continue. I mean, right. Uh, especially as the our population increases in size and the older population increases compared to the number of younger people. I think it's a uh, 2035, they say the 65 and older population will outnumber the 18 and under population. And what a lot of people probably don't know is that they say 25%, 25% or is it more, of every person, no, that people over the age of 65, a good percentage of them will spend at least one day in a nursing home. Oh, yeah. Well, and majority of people will need some form of long-term services and supports, even if it's not in a, a nursing home. It could be um, some care being brought into the home uh, uh, at some point. But, but yeah, and, and, and most people are not prepared to deal with that, uh, either from an educational perspective or, or from a financial perspective. Right. So, it's interesting when you say from an educational perspective, what I tell people, and this is I mentioned this earlier about getting the information beforehand, having the information, having that conversation. I think people think it's unpleasant or it's like, oh, if I talk about it, it's like catching a cold, you know, I'll, I'll get it. Or it, they think of their parents a certain way so they can't imagine anything different. But the reality is what I tell people is someday, sometime in all likelihood, you will get some kind of phone call that says your loved one either fell and broke their hip or 
that fractured their shoulder or whatever it is, or a stroke, a heart attack, you know, a, a number of things. They're in a hospital and they may not be able to go home for rehabilitation. So now they have to go to a short-term rehabilitation setting in a skilled nursing facility, which is where a lot of these um, rehab centers are now. And um, now I tell people they're at the mercy of the glossy marketing brochures. You know, they have no idea. They haven't done their homework. And sometimes, and I'm not saying anybody is a, a bad person, but their interests may not be the same interests that you have for your loved one. They have other relationships and there are other interests that come into play. It's just a reality. And unfortunately, your loved one might find themselves in a situation that isn't really the right one for them. So why not get this information beforehand? Yeah, and have that conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. Be proactive rather than reactive. Or I say plan by choice rather than by crisis, because those are, those are very stressful situations, psychologically, emotionally. You're dealing with, um, you know, your loved one's medical condition as well as where they're going to go to receive services, making that decision. There may be all kinds of familial um, uh, agreements or challenges or disagreements. Sometimes these situations kind of um, drudge up all kinds of uh, family history. That, and everybody, whoever says they don't have it, I always tell people, whoever says they don't have that, I don't believe them. <laughs> right? Wouldn't you say that's probably true? We have family history. Right? Oh, everybody does. I don't care because we're people. And so mm -hmm. people have, uh, I say they have their shtick. They have their characteristics, <laughs> right? So uh, what, what kinds of things, we, you talked uh, briefly about the, changes you think the pandemic is going to bring to how long-term care is imagined or reimagined or thought about um, even older people in general. I think in a way there's a part of me that feels uh, that it's almost reinforcing the idea that older people are vulnerable and frail and infirm and, oh, you know, people to be, um, I don't want to say pity, but, but it's, it's almost like it's reinforcing that idea that older people are frail, they're infirm, they're vulnerable. And that's not the case for all older people. It's going back to the idea of paper, painting people with a broad brush. And, um, you know, that's something that uh, because I talk, and not only me, but so many other people talk about ageism and attitudes towards people that are older and how we can change that. I almost think that this situation with the pandemic has been counterintuitive to that. What do you think about that? That's, that's an interesting point. Um, I mean, I do think, you know, the, the virus um, is uh, particularly challenging for older people, particularly older people with um, chronic conditions, um, uh, unfortunately so. Um, uh, I hadn't really thought about it in terms of sort of perpetuating um, uh, that sort of ageist view, uh, as you mentioned. I, you know, I think, um, I, I do think there will be changes in the long-term care system um, as a result of COVID-19. I think um, the senior living industry, because it is so uh, person-centered, focused on the resident, I think is, is well-suited to, to sort of emerge from this in, in a positive way. I, I think, you know, overall, our communities have done an incredible job in protecting their residents 
Um, uh, you know, we were all faced, uh, the entire healthcare system, the entire country in the very beginning was, was faced with shortages of PPE and, and certainly testing and so on. Um, but I, I think coming out of this, and we continue to hear from existing family members and residents that they're pleased with the level of care um, uh, that has been delivered in, in our buildings throughout this crisis. Part of the tragedy has been sort of that um, loss of socialization as you know, communities have had to restrict visitation, understandably so. Um, uh, but that I think has been sort of a, a, a tragedy that's been lost in this, this whole conversation. Um, I, I think a lot of our communities have um, addressed it well in terms of making technology available. And I know we all have seen the pictures of family members outside of windows, but the you know, vast majority of our communities were doing other things to help that connectivity between family members and loved ones. Sometimes it was a, an actual technology platform designed specifically for senior living communities, but other times it was simply using social media or mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, and, and providing tablets so that they could have uh, Zoom calls or, or video conference calls. Um, but I think that use of technology is going to be something that comes out of this. We're going to see that more in our buildings, not from a socialization perspective per se, but perhaps from a telehealth perspective. Right. You know, we've, we've seen adoption of technologies that screen people when they come in, you know, temperature checks and, and question, you know, electronic questionnaires. And I, you know, I think you'll see that moving forward, but I think there's a great service that our communities provide. And I think, you know, people are still going to be looking for it. I think there's going to be a pent-up demand. And so specific to senior living, I, I'm, I'm optimistic about where um, those communities go and the, and, and the numbers of people that ultimately move into our communities. But I think as a whole, the long-term care continuum is going to need to, to uh, or from a public policy perspective, again, we're going to need to think about how we address the vast needs of all those 65-plus that you talked about earlier are going to need in the future and how we're going to sort of evolve the long-term care continuum to serve all of those people. Yeah, I agree. I think also, correct me if I'm wrong, that most assisted living communities, if not all, uh, people have individual rooms, correct? Aren't they private rooms? For the most part, yeah. And I I think... And that's, that's, that's part of why I think, you know, once we come out of the, the crisis and there'll be the sort of lessons learned, um, uh, I think that is one of the reasons why our communities will have done um, uh, fairly well with dealing with COVID is because you do have those private residences for the most part. But, but I also, you know, have to give credit to the communities that were um, closing down visitation early on, right? Saw the writing on the wall and understood where this crisis was going. And I use this analogy oftentimes but, you know, when it first started in, in Washington State, you know, um, in a skilled nursing facility there, we had an operator that had uh, a communities there in Washington State, but also here on the East Coast. And they stopped visitation in all of their communities. And they had family members on the East Coast and residents saying, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? But they understood the seriousness of it. And, and I think steps like that that were taken um, did a lot to prevent the spread of the virus coming into the buildings. Mm you know, unique partnerships to identify ways to get PPE when everybody was struggling to get access to it and partnerships with local labs to conduct testing. And, and I mean, many of our providers have been doing testing on their own unreimbursed for months and months now to make sure that they reduce the spread of the virus into the buildings. Uh, something that you just said, I, I just thought of something. Uh, of course, we heard that the, uh, 
they're going to approve that healthcare workers and residents in nursing homes and assisted living communities will be the first ones to receive the vaccine. Of course, that's not happening tomorrow, but it will happen uh, fairly soon, I think. Um, of course, they don't know if it's going to be a one-step or a two-step. I mean, there there's a lot that goes into it. So what do you think is going to I think that people probably think, oh, the vaccine is here. Okay, we'll all be able to go and visit and we'll all be able to do what we did. But I don't really think that's the case. So what would you say in your mind do you think is the time frame for when things will be able to get back to some sense of normalcy in that regard? So as I understand it, once the vaccines start moving into um uh, senior living communities. And so team members start getting the vaccines and residents start getting the vaccines. It'll be roughly a three-month period before that whole process runs through the existing population of people, right? But you do have turnover in staff and you have new residents that come in. And so it'll be a continual process even after those first three months to continue vaccinating people. And, and um, a lot of our communities are working uh, through a partnership that was set up now, um, through HHS uh, with CVS and Walgreens right. to, to make sure that their residents get access to that. And I think that'll be a, a good solution for administering it and, and, and sort of streamlining that entire process. But it will need to continue, certainly for those three months and even beyond those three months. And then, of course, you have the whole issue of, of what, at what point does the country reach, you know, sort of herd immunity. Right. And I think there's there's still some questions about when we get to that point. Right. So I'm thinking that because uh, some visitation has been relaxed in some cases, but uh, in some places, I should say, now it's kind of going back in the other direction because cases are spiking again. In other areas of the country, I'm in Connecticut, uh, there is a facility that I know upstate, and um, I spoke to the uh, administrator of a sister facility about a week or so ago, and they were doing great, and then out of the clear blue sky, they have 12 cases again. So I think it's going to be a while before people can anticipate being able to visit the way they visited previously. It's going to continue for, for some time, right? And even once vaccines start, that doesn't mean PPE stops. That doesn't mean right. social distancing stops. We still need to take all the precautions that we have been taking um, for these past many months. Um, life will not return to normal overnight. And in some respects, won't return to normal um, for the broader society uh, uh, at all. I mean, I think there are going to be fundamental changes to how we live our lives on a go-forward basis. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I'm thinking that um, that people might not really understand that, that they're already making that switch in their mind that says, oh, a vaccine is here. It's almost like Christmas is here. Oh, a vaccine is here. Great. You know, I'll be able to rush into the assisted living community or nursing home or wherever it is. I th Let me ask you this question, because uh, in the last few minutes that we have, because people can visit communities or nursing homes the way they did before. If they want, need to choose a place for themselves or for their loved ones, how is uh, the assisted living community addressing that issue? Are they doing more virtual tours? Uh, how are they um, having people understand the services kind of firsthand? Uh, it's hard to do it over the telephone. It is, it is. And, and, and I think... 
um, you are seeing uh, more communities offer sort of those virtual tours and, and come up with new ways to, to sort of communicate that value proposition. I will touch on something you mentioned earlier, though. I mean, our, our communities working with states and, and based on state regulations have ultimately identified ways in which you can slowly open a building back up and quickly close a building back down. Right, um, and it's through frequent testing and, and certainly uh, personal protective equipment. But I think that's been a part of it too. Is is if you're in this period of, of being open, you know, how do you let somebody come and, and tour a building? But you're doing the testing, PPE, social distancing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, not every building is closed. If you're in a green county, you don't have high prevalence of COVID in your county. There is an opportunity for people to tour a building, as an example. Mm-hmm. And so we've, we've seen a lot of that, and I think there's been some, some really good success with that in terms of not opening a building up per se for tours, but back to family visitation, right? Again, that's a big part of the tragedy of this whole situation has been these buildings were designed for socialization, but COVID has, has in some regard had to isolate people and, and got to figure out how to keep them, you know, open them back up and scale it back down. I think, you know, the state's uh, have done a good job in working with with our providers to to create some of those regulations to be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Because as we all well know, socialization and loneliness, or I should say, isolation and loneliness is they are, uh, you know, the ingredients of depression and decline physically and cognitively. Um, I know someone who told me back in the beginning in the New York area that his mother was in the assisted living community and she was in her room for six weeks. And what happened as a result of that, you know, physically she started declining. She started falling and uh, because she wasn't doing anything physically to maintain that strength. So that's another area of concern. If people are isolated in their rooms more, what kind of strategies can a community, whether it's actually a nursing home or an assisted living community provide to people so they don't decline while they're, you know, sitting in their rooms. You know, I think that brings us to the end. This has been fantastic. I really appreciated it. And I know the listeners probably learned a lot of important information about assisted living communities. Before we go, how could people contact Argentum or get information about Argentum or the communities that are members of the Argentum um, network? Well, certainly they can visit our website, argentum.org, www.argentum.org. And we actually, we have some um, information available on there for consumers that have questions about senior living communities. I'd also direct people to uh, another website, Where You Live Matters, which is a, a website put together by one of our sister associations that has a lot of resources available um, uh, for consumers and individuals looking to better understand the senior living business model. So resources are out there, um, certainly, but I think those are two good places to start. Oh, well, thanks a lot. Well, James, all I can say is thanks for generously sharing your time on Senior Straight Talk, for the enlightening conversation, the valuable work you do, and what it represents for the entire senior living community. And um, for all of our listeners, because uh, I learned a lot, so I'm sure that they did. So uh, I can say to our listeners, please join us on our next episode of Senior Straight Talk for more informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. And I'm signing off now, Phyllis Amon. Please remember to like, click, and share our episodes. And until next time, stay safe, stay well, and stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Senior Straight Talk. 
Join your hosts, Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry again soon for another episode on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or your favorite podcast platforms. 